All right, now we're cooking with Crisco. Right on. <laughs> well, hopefully not. That's not helping. But you know what? My mom used to make cookies with Crisco. Yeah, wasn't that the thing, that can? That's how we did it. You buy that one can, it's like a lifetime supply, that white yeah. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew it was killing us? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist Ray Angry, who, as a pianist and producer, has worked with artists from Wynton Marsalis to Q-Tip to Sting to Mick Jagger to Dionne Warwick. Ray, thank you for talking with me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's a total, total honor and pleasure to speak with Steinway, you know, and speak with you. This is really a dream, to be honest with you. Thank you. We're excited to have you. So, Ray, classical, jazz, gospel, hip-hop, you're a keyboardist, you're a composer, you're a producer. I bet there's more. Is there something that is at the root of all your roles and all your genres would you say you're a pianist first? I definitely say that I'm a pianist first. I was the oddball in my neighborhood that was playing classical piano. <laughs> you know, everyone else was playing basketball and football and being on the varsity team. I was, you know, I was playing piano, practicing Rachmaninoff and, you know, playing scales. Yeah. So Ray was classical the first genre. That was your first exposure to piano was through classical music. Actually, it was. But it, weirdly enough, here's a weird thing. So I grew up playing classical music, but I was I grew up in church. So I was around all these musicians that were playing by ear. And, you know, I could read music, but I was really fascinated at how they could make up these beautiful chords and someone could sing and they could just come up with these amazing chords and all these crazy rhythms. And so I, for years, was beating myself up because I I couldn't naturally do that because I didn't know what it was, you know? Classical was, that was my, the world that I lived in. And, but I grew up listening to gospel music and growing up in the church. And eventually those sounds got into my system. And then I started playing in churches and going to high school, playing recitals, and then playing at my jazz church on Sunday and and revivals and, and whatnot. It was that combination of classical and church music I imagine, that led you into jazz, gospel, hip-hop, et cetera. I, yeah, I, I was, I, <laughs> it's funny because I didn't listen, I honestly, I can honestly say this, I didn't really listen to jazz until I got to college. Okay. Because it was foreign to me, you know, I, I remember hearing Branford Marcellus Trio GP, and I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, what, you know, what is he playing? And then listening to Stevie Wonder and hearing his, all his complex harmonies. Yeah. So when I got to college, that's when it really opened up because then I saw a world of music because, number one, I, was, I wasn't I um, was under my parents' umbrella. So I was like meeting all kinds of musicians because my parents really sheltered me because my father didn't want me to, you know, go down the wrong path to be with people that were not you know, serious about music and, and whatnot. So he really sheltered me in that regard. 
And uh, once I got to college, I started playing with Richard Smallwood and Yolanda Adams and the Hawkins. Like, you wouldn't believe it. Like, the Winans. I'm, you know, I'm just 18-year-old kid, like, on tour with the Winans. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is... <laughs> I'm hearing all this music, and I'm, you know, in jazz clubs. And it was like people at the bar drinking, and people are just going up, writing their name on a, on a tablet to say, yeah, I want to play. And they're sitting in. This was foreign to me. So I'm like... And, and the same, at the same time... I'm a classical major in school, so I had to, like, when you're a classical major, it's forbidden to play anything other than classical music because uh-huh. it requires so much study and so much uh, so much of your time. But somehow, I just made it work. I was a rebel. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so dad's influence was to push you into classical, and then once you were at school, once you were at college, mm-hmm. you're out from under his thumb and you discovered this other music that maybe you had had blinders on to before. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, my my name, my full name is Raymond Sebastian Angry. OK, so, so Sebastian, so- Sebastian <laughs> that's a loaded name for uh, for classical. Players. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my dad, he had a plan. He had a plan in mind. You know, he, you know, he had a plan. OK, but it sounds like it worked out. Tell me, how did this lead to your role as a producer? How did you get into the producer side of things? That's a very good question because, okay, so it's weird. So when I moved to New York, when I I got my master's from Howard University and I moved to New York, I was really scared to move to New York, first of all. And then I'm like in this big city. And then all of a sudden people find out that I was in New York and then I get calls to do studio sessions. And then the first major session I got was to do a commercial with Questlove. And then, funny enough, Questlove's manager took a liking to me because I was this kid who could, like, play classical music and jazz and could just, you know, create music on the spot. So I was a natural producer, but I didn't know it. And so the manager really mentored me. His name was Richard Nichols. And he was the guy that got me my first gig with Joss Stone when she did her her debut album, Mind, Body, and Soul. And on that, that recording session, I was working with now Rogers, Cindy Blackman, Jack Daly, and so many other great people. And the record label owner was Steve Greenberg. And Steve took a liking to me. And I was also working with a producer named Mike Mangini. And so then I got into the world of recording and producing music and working with producers. And so as I was working with music producers, such as Mike Mangini and KG and different, you know, different producers, you know, they would say, so what do you think? You know, I would go in a session, they would say, hey, Ray, so, hey, what would you do? What would you do here? And I was like, oh, let's do this. You know what I mean? And and then I was like, and then the Roots manager was like, hey, man, you're a producer. I'm going to have you go to the studio with the Roots. And he basically gave me my first production credit. So the first album that I ever worked on as a producer was with the Roots, and it was um, How I Got Over. And the first song that I did with them was called A Piece of Light. And if you can bear with me, I'll give you a little taste of, of what that is. Do, 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 do
keyboard sound was in this keyboard by Roland. Questlove was like, hey, listen, we got to make some interludes for this album. And so I did all these interludes and it was literally him telling the engineer, uh, give me uh, 90 BPM, you know? And, uh, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking at him like, uh, uh, okay, uh, wh- what are we playing? He's like, oh, just make up something. Literally, that's how he, that's how he, <laughs> you know, he told me. That's what he told me. And so I, that's the first thing that I played. I sat down, just stream of consciousness, played that, and that was the song. That was the record. And then I just added layers and more layers, and it was done. It's like 10 minutes. Here's what I like about this path. It was a fast path, but here's what I love about it. The path was conservatory musician, studio musician, and then producer almost almost immediately, right? <laughs> yeah. But people don't know. I, I think a, a lot of folks don't know who aren't musicians or aren't in the business that studio musicians, especially in New York, are like where it's at. Like the great, the real, that really tight Dave Letterman band. Yeah. All those cats are first call studio musicians. Session players. Session played players. Played on great, I mean, Steve Jordan. Come on, forget right. about it. Right. That guy is, a, he's, you know, great session player. Maybe you could tell our listeners, what is the life of a, a studio musician? Like, what does that mean to be a session player, to be a studio musician? Well, essentially, it's really, you're like the gas in a, in a car. You're just there and, you know, a, a song, you know, someone may have an idea, but you're really putting life into it, whether it be through, you know, amazing drummer, you create parts because the thing about being a session musician, you're actually an orchestrator because you have to create parts and create melodic you know, rhythmic motifs and and melodic motifs that catch people's ears, which is how you have these hit records, because they're all basically reoccurring themes that, you know, play in people's brains over and over. And you're like, oh, my God, I love this song. And it's haunting. And but it's really composition. And a lot of great session players are able to have the discipline to play an eight bar loop and then for the verse and then for the chorus, they know how to create a field and switch it up. And then you have this just really magical moment with all these people just sort of creating together, you know? So it's really being a session musician means really being a team player, but also creating and developing themes and variations variations of those themes, if that makes any sense at all. Very much. So let's take that a step up. You're a producer along with session musicians and an artist or, you know, the name talent in the room. What's your role there? In that role, you're really like, you're like Steve Jobs. You're like making sure that all the analytics are in. You're making sure that, you know, the engineer is is EQing the, the vocals right, the mix is right. You're making sure that the changes make sense. Like the, the you know, you're making sure that, the vocals are, you know, the story is being told properly, that the artist is, you know, given 100 percent. You're making sure that at the end of the day, when that record comes out, every T has been crossed and every I has been dotted, you know. So it's really overseeing the whole process. And then, you know, and then there's a the business side of it, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> OK, but let's, <laughs> for this podcast, we'll stay on the artistic side. So <laughs> I imagine, of course, that that process is going to vary depending on who the artist is you're working with. Absolutely. But give me an idea as to how it might unfold 
during a session. Let's say you come in and you're you're trying to lay down a track and you're the producer. What are you bringing to the table? How are you interacting with the artist? Tell me a bit about what goes on. From the onset, like it's really important for the artist to be able to convey their story in a very clear and concise way. So when you're developing a song, it's really important to make sure that melodically the chords work together. And then you're like, if you're programming drums, you're making sure that you have the right textures of drums. So you might, for example, if you're having a writing session, I might sit down at the piano a lot of times and I'll just just come up with a chorus or just develop the song with the artist. And then once we de- develop the song, then I'll, maybe I'll program some drums or I'll just put preliminary parts together and then have musicians come and add on to whatever I created. Or maybe we'll just do a session where musicians are in the room and we create music on the spot. Like, like I've done that with Queen Latifah. You know, like we'll just have a bunch of musicians come in and I'll just sit down and create a structure and I'll say, okay, here's the chorus, here's the changes for the hook, here's the bridge, and basically write the music out and then show the musicians and then we record. And then we do different takes and see which feels the best. But essentially, it starts at the piano for me as a producer, creating a song that makes sense. You talked about these earworms that are the reason pop songs are popular. Mm-hmm. I imagine that being a producer is also trying to find that riff or that motive or that motif that carries throughout the song, right? Yeah, I call them golden nuggets. Golden nuggets. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to seed the landscape with that gold yeah. so that we continually want to dig it up and hear it again, mm-hmm. right? That's a big part is this anticipation of this moment or this riff that you know is coming. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, there's so many other things that go into it as well. But yeah, of course, I don't want to oversimplify, but tell me. Sonically, as as I do more records, sonically, it's really important because people subconsciously, they they can tell when something is not mixed well because you feel it. So really, so I'm trying to make sure that when I'm creating music that I'm capturing that emotion and that feeling. And when you hear it sonically, you're hearing everything and you're feeling all the music and the story is being conveyed in a very clear way. And I think, you know, that also plays a role as well. The sound of the drums, the, you know, the mix, how the keys are mixed, the EQ of the, of the guitar or, you know, the type of amp you're using, the type of microphone you're using. All of these things play a really important role in producing. And so that's part of the Steve Jobs responsibility you were speaking to earlier about making sure all these rivets are in and nothing's sticking out. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no glitch in the the app. (laughs) We have to call customer service. uh... (laughs) You have played with a lot of great artists and you've produced with a lot of great artists. I'm going to name check a few of my faves in no particular order to jog your memory for stories. Okay. Okay. Whitney Houston, D'Angelo, Sting, John Legend, Jeff Beck, Q-Tip, Mick Jagger, Tlaib Kweli, Dionne Warwick, What strategy and wisdom? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. What strategy and wisdom have you picked up from some of these artists where you're like, oh, that's something I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep. Or that's something that I'm gonna try to uh, instill in my own artistic process. 
Well, a couple of things, but I just got to give you this one little thing. Yes. So Dion Warwick, I was doing a session with her and it was such like I love being in a studio and but especially when you work when I'm working with veteran artists such as her who's like created great records and I want to like ask her like, you know, what kind of microphones were using? How are you how were you guys recording those albums, you know? But the thing that I, I love and I still speak with her to this day. I love Dion. Um and when I was working with her, she she used to call me Ray Mononoff. Because <laughs> I was, you know, I was playing some classical pieces. I think I was playing like uh, the C sharp minor prelude by Rachmaninoff. Sure. And she was like, uh, Ray, she called me Ray Mononoff. But the through line between all of these artists that, I've, that you've named is that um, I think to get to where they've gotten, I think there's a sense of fearlessness in pursuing something that you really believe in. To do music is really brave because there's so many uncertainties, you know, anything can happen. And I think it's a really brave thing to say, you know, I want to be a recording artist, you know, I want to make records and travel around the world. And uh, being around Mick Jagger and, you know, he was producing this film called Alfie and I was working with him and Dave Stewart and being in Abbey Road, only thing I could think of is when I was in college in my dormitory and I was like, God, I really want to travel the world and work with great people. And here I am in the studio with Mick Jagger yeah. and and they're like, I play the organ and Mick is in the booth, like rocking his head while I'm playing. I'm like, what the f-? and then and then they're like, hey, uh, hey, can you replay the piano part? And I was like, ah, you know, I mean not, you know, I don't want to do that because they had a piano player there and they would they just were, were loving, you know, the the fun that I was having there, you know, and it's just really being fearless, you know, and I think that's the thing that I took away from all of those artists, you know, at this point, you know, especially having been a sideman for so many different recording artists. And so now when I'm in this place where I'm, you know, creating a lot of music and really developing artists and making music with my friends and creating this sense of ownership amongst the, my peers with uh, the music that we're creating, it's been amazing. And I'm really blessed to be able to say that I've worked with Talib Kweli and Mick Jagger and Whitney Houston, for God's sake. I worked with her, like it, I did her last tour. And, you know, and her, you know, she was, she had gone through a lot, you know, just getting a glimpse of her greatness was just heaven to me, you know. She was so nice to me. I'm so appreciative of her, man. Like, as far as all the artists that I work with, she was like in the top five, you know, in terms of how she treated the band, making them feel like a family. I've never been treated in such a royal way in my life. Like, she was, she was a joy to work with. And her impact, first of all, there was that period in the 80s where we were listening to nothing but that debut Whitney Houston album, Ooh. right? And then... The national anthem, there's pre-Whitney and there's post-Whitney. She literally changed the way that one sings Mm -hmm. the American national anthem. Absolutely. Being fearless. Bringing it back. That's it. That was a fearless performance. That's the truth. At the Super Bowl. Yeah. I remember watching it. Mm -hmm. It had an impact immediately and forever Mm -hmm. after.
so you also do straight ahead jazz. Yeah. Your album one, I really love the transcendence of the track Circles Inside You. Ooh. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. After I listened to it, I had this brilliant thought <laughs> that jazz and classical are so good for that kind of transcendence. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. Of course. Yeah. So, of course. I mean, you want to speak to that? Oh, my God. First of all, let's talk about Debussy. Okay. Like, you know what I mean? Debussy and Ravel. Yeah. Harmonically, yeah. forget about it. Like, it's so... It, it it it's so the sunken cathedral. Oh my god! Oh my god! Like yeah, man. You know, WC and these guys. I, I can only imagine them if they were like messing around, improvising, and playing jazz. You know, I can just see that. You know, one of my favorite pianists is uh, Kenny Kirkland, and he was a classical pianist, and also Keith Jarrett. Here's the thing about music. To me, music is fluid mm-hmm. because it's sort of like when you go. When you go uh, to the farmer's market and you get all these amazing vegetables from this farm, to me, that's what music is like. It's like you're picking the best of what's in this season, you know? And I just love, I love blending classical and jazz together, especially if you're playing a ballad. It just feeds the soul, being so melodic and so harmonic. And so for me, Circles Inside You was um, when I did that. I wanted it to feel like the soundtrack for a movie, like for like a Spike Lee film. Right. It's Spike Lee's father. Yeah. You know, that was my inspiration for my album, actually, listening to Spike Lee's films, his older films. You're talking like Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Mo Better Blues. Those moments where I think the term that's popular now is overscoring, Mm. right? Instead of underscoring, where the the music becomes a character in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If I'm not wrong, I believe when Spike Lee did More Better Blues, I believe they recorded the music first mm-hmm. and then he created the film around the music. So we're speaking of Bill Lee. Yeah. For those who want to do their homework and check him out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's amazing. I'm a huge fan. Tell me about your work with Harlem School of the Arts yeah. and in music education. So when a pandemic happened and there was like all of these things happening socially where you had police officers. When George Floyd died, you know, you had all these things happening socially that was causing an uprising in the Black community and really in communities all over the United States. So I was really moved by that. And at the time, I was working with this artist named Imani, and we had written a song a year prior for um, Leslie Odom Jr. So I, I had done his record 
we wrote a song for him and it was a little bit too political for him. Not too political. It just didn't fit the vibe of his album. So Imani and I, I was trying to pitch it to Shirley Bassey because I'm a huge Shirley Bassey fan. Sure. My dream is to work with her. So I was like talking with her manager and trying to figure out what we could do together. And so I sent her this song. Hold on a second. Let's talk about Shirley Bassey real quick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man. Goldfinger. Listening to Goldfinger is like looking into the sun. Yes. She makes my eyes water on that track. It's so strong. So strong. Oh, my God. Yeah, my dream is to actually work with her. Shirley Bassey, oh, my God. What can you say about that voice? And her voice is still amazing. I'm a huge fan. We could talk about her all day. So I started the story, and I'll end it here. Um, I wrote a song called Welcome to My Life, Don't Shoot. And I wrote it with my writing partner, Imani Coppola. We were like, you know, we should just release this song. And then I was like, well, yeah, let's release it and give all the proceeds to a charity. I was friends with someone, and they said, well, you should think about Harlem School of the Arts. And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. I, that's amazing because I have a couple of friends that taught there. We created this song. We released it through S-Curve and S-Curve and also BMG. And we gave all of the proceeds to Harlem School of the Arts and Music Cares. Well, I listened to that track. It's a banger. Thank you. Yeah, I think more people need to hear it so we can get more money to Harlem School of the Arts. Don't get stressed. Educational outreach, is that something that is important for what you do? Without a question. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny because I was talking with my friend Chris Dave, um, an incredible drummer. We were just talking about that because we both at Howard. And we were talking about how educational-wise, there is somewhat of a disconnect because when you're a working musician and you're in the scene and you're making records, a lot of times you don't have time to teach But since COVID happened, you know, people need to know what it's like in a studio, especially if you're a college student. Yes. What are the ins and outs of, you know, you're studying, you're a piano major. Say you're playing classical music and you're a piano major. You need to know what it feels like to be in a recording studio. You know, if you're a composition major, you need to know what it's like to work in Sibelius or Finale and, you know, and then take that and maybe you're you're scoring a film. You know, you have to learn how to re- work with a director, you know, work with an engineer. So all of these things people need to know. And then more importantly, the business of music is a loss. It's, a, it's, it's not even a, con- a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not even a conversation. And to me, 
you're studying so much, and then some guy yeah. who didn't go to that's a failure. That's a failure. That's a big fail. Some guy who didn't go to school, who can't read music, who couldn't tell you, couldn't show you where middle C is. He's the guy that that's paying you. He's gonna say, "Hey, man, yeah, you're doing a great job, man. You're work for hire. Yeah, just sign this form. <laughs> now you don't need a lawyer, man. Nah, don't worry about it. Just here's your four hundred dollars. Thank you so much. Yeah." You know the dirty word is just focus on the music. Mm-hmm. I'll take care of the business. You know? Yeah. And I had this guy, I was working in the studio once, and you know, it was a hip-hop situation. And this guy, he was he was like, listen, man, he pulled me to the side. He was, he was like, listen, man, I respect your talent so much. But f- your talent. <laughs> this is the music business. And he was like, just giving me, he was basically giving me. The, the music business one-on-one. Right. And when you're making records and you're working, you know, in the music industry, it's really not about the talent. It's really about who knows the business, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the guy that knows the business is like the, the early bird gets the worm. And yeah. he's the guy that's up and he knows all the ins and outs. He knows how to, you know, use words like work for hire. Right. You know, which I can't stand when someone comes to me and they're like, hey, yeah, man, um... Yeah, you know, thanks, man. That was great, man. What's your fee? What's your... Yeah, it's a work for hire situation. That's like, just cut me. Yeah. You know, yeah. because how can I, as a creative, it's insulting for you to say I'm a work for hire when you're coming to me and you want me to to create something to help you fulfill your vision. Nah, man, we are partners. Right. You're not going to tell me I'm a work for hire. Now, there are situations where you are work for hire and someone says... Here's the sheet music, read the music, and you read exactly what they want, and then that's, and boom, you're out of there. Now, that's a work for hire. But, you know, if you're in a situation, and, and a lot of times people aren't giving you charts. Right. Let's be honest. You know, they're saying, they're putting on a track, and they're saying, hey, play these chords. Just play the Play what you feel. Play, play what, what you, you feel. Yeah, play what you feel. Just just play it better. Do your thing. Do you. What would you do? You know? And that's so those kinds of things. Kids need to know the ins and outs of the business because you know what? It's the music business, you know? Yeah. We're not just doing music because someone's got to do the business. And I think it's just a shame. Kids go to Juilliard and they go to Berkeley and they go to all these amazing schools and Howard University. And I've gone to, you know, I have my master's degree. So I've gone to school, but I've also been in a situation where I didn't know, you know, what to ask for. Fee-wise, I didn't know, like, work for hire. I was like, oh, great. I was just happy to be on a session. You know, I was happy to be working. And it's just, in this day and age, it's just not good enough to not know. I just pray that we're able to have artists who are actually working in the music industry, who are making records, have them actually create some sort of curriculum where Young kids can learn the business, even at a young age, learn about contracts and learning about how to develop your own business or how to market yourself. Because what does it mean to be able to play with your eyes closed, every note on the piano, and then when you open your eyes, everyone around you has taken everything away from you. It's a shame to be a genius and then people take advantage of you because most geniuses They're great at music and not at business. Mm. And it's a shame, you know? And I think that's where we hurt our our music industry. And then you have the pop music. People can't complain that the pop music is shitty unless unless you're 
trying to figure out how to solve the problem. And I feel like musicians need to step outside of their genres, outside of their comfort zone, and let's change what we don't like about the music industry. I think you said it well in that let's get this on the curriculum, especially at conservatories, right, where you're really just focusing away on on nailing those runs and on mastering your instrument. But you know what? Let's make sure we have courses on business management. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure that people graduate knowing how to set up an LLC or a business partnership and how to read a contract, or at least how to run things past a contract lawyer before you sign something. Exactly. How to not get involved in one of these horrendous 360 deals that record companies are trying to run up the flagpole now. Exactly. Here's my thing. One person that I love on this planet is Wynton Marcellus. Mm -hmm. And I love Wynton because Wynton, his integrity is so high and he's so his belief in excellence, no matter what people's opinion of his belief in excellence, it just speaks to me. And for me, I want to be the person that takes it a step further and make musicians across the whole spectrum of music just change the narrative. Let's all change the narrative and raise the vibration of the music we're creating. Let's raise the business. You know, music should be fun. When I make records with people, you know, sometimes it takes me like five minutes to create something. You know what I mean? It's like music is fun. And and I think it should be fun again. And we should have like more songs in the key of life and more records, you know, more albums. Mm-hmm. Like people are making albums. Like when did we stop listening to music? It's like you have all these singles and da 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 da. You know, yeah, I understand. Yeah. I understand the marketing and all of that. But you lose the journey, the careful curation of a forty-five to a seventy-minute journey. Yeah, you know, having sitting with your family, having a glass of wine, and and putting on an album and listening to a whole album. Like, when did we stop loving music and music became like, you know, yeah, let me get a number one. Uh, I think I'm gonna get number two. No fries. You know, when it become music become McDonald's that is so manufactured that we take the fun out of it. You know what I mean? I think we need to make music fun again. Well, thank you for joining me for Old Men on the Stoop. <laughs> I know. I hope I didn't sound negative, man. No, no, no. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm kidding. This is real. These are real issues, and you're offering real solutions. Yeah, I just love music, and I love people, and I, and I, I really want to create music that brings people together from all walks of life, yeah. you know? Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. Listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from a piece of light off the Roots album How I Got Over on Def Jam Records, from Whitney Houston performing The Star Spangled Banner, from Circles Inside You off Ray Angry's album One on JMI Recordings, from Shirley Bassey performing Goldfinger, and from WTML Don't Shoot by Ray Angry and Imani Coppola. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our outro music is Ray Angry's Circles Inside You. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard 
or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.